Welcome to the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings, and today we're talking about Noah's departure from the Ark and the tragedy that ensues. And Marty, I'm kind of picking up a theme with what we keep doing here, so I'm just going to get right to it and say uh, you probably got some problems for us, right? I do have some problems. Uh, let me throw it back to you before I start going through there. Do you find any problems when you look at this story? Uh, well, there's a couple couple of weird things. Uh, I, I don't understand the order of how the sons are listed because there's this youngest son stuff, and I thought that they're supposed to be listed from oldest to youngest because of the firstborn thing, but they're mixed up and right so they're listed in like uh you have shame and then hum and then yefet and the way that they come out of the ark you have it in the way that they're listed uh, but then later we're told uh when they do their table of nations in the next chapter they're listed in the opposite order and we're told that yefet is the eldest brother later in the story so it's weird that the order is mixed up i, I think we'll come back to that I contemplated doing that in this podcast, but I don't want to muddy the water. So I'm going to save that little treasure we're, for... We're still saving the genealogies, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I th- believe we are. I believe we're going to save the genealogies. We're saving those. And we're going to save this little tidbit about shame and Yefet and Ham and their birth order. I think for a little bit later, because uh, we found something pretty cool, uh, the disciples and I, as we were wrestling with the story this week. So uh, we'll save that. And come back to that later. What else you got? Uh, well, there's the the whole vineyard thing. This is the first time a vineyard has ever been mentioned in the text, and Noah's already figured out how to make wine out of it. Okay, so we've got like the law of first mention going on here, which you're referencing, which we haven't talked about on the podcast yet. We're going to later, uh, but that's a principle. I think you love to call it the principle of principle, first mention. Yeah. <laughs> principle of first law mention. Law is too. It doesn't always work, it's right? It's not always there. So. It's not always true, but it is one of the most commonly asked Jewish hermeneutical principles is where does this word first show up? And you've noticed that quite a few words show up in the scriptures for the first time in this story. The idea is that when you find something in its first mention, that's how you're going to understand that word. So whenever we find vineyards, we're going to come back uh, to this story and be able to think, okay, I'm supposed to understand this concept and what the story is talking about uh, should be rooted, no pun intended, in this uh, idea of of the story of Noah. So we'll hold on to that. We'll come back to that at some later point as well. Uh, the other question is, what's the big deal about Noah being naked in his own tent? Okay. Like, isn't that, isn't that a place where you can do that? Like it's your tent. Right. Right. I mean, you gotta, I don't know. You have to change clothes at some point. Maybe he just, I like that. I like that. I, I don't know. Okay. We'll come back to that as well. And we'll come back to that one today even. All right. Any other problems you got? Well, at this point, it seems like there aren't a whole lot of people around. So when Noah wakes up, uh, how did he find out about who did what? Okay, that's a great question. Does he come roaring out of the tent and say, hey, what's going on? Right, okay. No, I like that. I'm pretty sure I didn't fall asleep with this blanket on me. How did it get here? Right, okay. That's an excellent question, which will be relevant for today's discussion. Okay, so I'm going to pick up and start reading. We're halfway through um, chapter 9 here. We're basically going to go uh, 9.18 through the rest of the chapter here. So I'm going to read it, and maybe we'll pick up some questions as we go along here. So here we go. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Yefet. Ham was the father of Canaan. Uh, these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered all over the earth. 
Uh, so I would say maybe, I don't know if a problem, but I'm noticing here this parenthetical, uh, it's mentioning Canaan. Okay, that's weird. It's mentioning that Ham is the father of Canaan. Uh, let's keep going here. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in the side, inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, there's that phrase again, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But shame and Yepheth, okay, let's stop there. So he sees his father. Is there any problems there that you see? Well, why did he go and tell them? Right. And there's this whole, and there's this weird thing about seeing the nakedness. Like that's just kind of weird. And like, so he sees his father's nakedness. Then he goes and tells them. So that's kind of perplexing. Um, one of the things that we'll find here is that, well, we'll, we'll talk about that just in a moment here. Uh, let's keep reading. Uh, but shame and Yepheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And when they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness, their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. Okay. Anything you're picking up there you're noticing? That's the same strange seeing of nakedness. Right. It's kind of a repetition of this nakedness idea. Seems like we might have heard that before, but nevertheless. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now, do you have any problems there? It's interesting that it says he awoke from his wine rather than from his sleep. Okay, yes. Um, I just noticed that. Uh, and then he, I mean, there's Canaan. Ham's not even mentioned now. It's like, Ham, oh, by the way, Canaan. Ham, oh, by the way, Canaan. And now Ham's just completely out of the picture. Right. Like the curse why, is for Canaan. Oh. Yeah. Why in the world does Noah curse Canaan, when Ham is the one that's done something wrong. Like, why does this, that is totally weird. Like, what in the world is Noah doing? Like, why are you mad at your grandson? Be mad at your son. It's your son that. Okay, so that's definitely weird. That's going to be a huge problem here in the story. Well, now I have a question based off of what you just said. Okay. How do we know what Ham did is wrong? It's a great question. Well, what, what did he do? Exactly. And, and there's some kind of illusion in the story that he's definitely done something. He's telling the brothers. The brothers immediately respond. Okay, there's something going on there. We'll definitely come back to that. Um, let's finish the story here. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of shame. May Canaan be the slave of shame. So he's just really going after Canaan here. Uh, may God extend the territory of Yefet. May Yefet live in the tents of shame. And may Canaan be his slave. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. And it was about time, I think. And it was about time. It's been a long, it's been a long life for Mr. Noah. It's a very long journey. That's right. Now, okay, so we had all these questions, and one of the things that we noticed, let's jump back a story. In the flood, we noticed, and I think we hinted at it just a moment ago as we read through this, we notice in the flood that it was a direct parallel and a retelling of the creation story. We had all the days of creation paralleled. We had, uh, we had Sabbath paralleled. We had a God that knew how to stop creating in story one. And then we had a God who knew how to stop destroying in the story of the flood. So we had all these parallels. So if just by chance, this is probably going to be a stretch, right? We're not going to see this. But if we were... To continue the parallels, what would you expect to see next, Brent? Uh, well, we should have a garden coming up. Ah, oh, we should have a garden. There's some people in the garden, some fruit. All right, so do we have do we have a guy that comes out of an ark and plants a 
garden, plants a vineyard, uh, and there and there were the idea, the world there, uh, two connected ideas: a vineyard, terraced vineyard, um, and, and a and another kind of vineyard or a garden would be very much the same idea. So we have a guy coming out of the ark and creating a garden, and you said fruit. So we have uh, we have Noah. Uh, tasting of the garden's fruit and bad things happening. What else should we have? Um, well, nakedness was a pretty big theme. Oh man, wasn't there like this huge, just like there was in the story of Adam and Eve, a theme of nakedness. We have this, uh, another awkward story about nakedness. Okay. Uh, and then a covering of the nakedness later on. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You're absolutely right. There's a covering of the nakedness. Oh man, that's so good. I, I just realized that. Yeah, I was well looking at the there. text again. I love that. Okay. And then the the story should end with uh, some kind of curse. Okay. And we have, uh, and again, we have this curse. So we continue to have these parallels uh, back to the creation stories as they're being told. So just like Noah is a parallel of the creation story, uh, Noah and his vineyard is a parallel to Adam and Eve in the garden. So we'll just hang on to that here for a moment. But let me tell you something that the Midrash teaches about this story. Now, the Midrash, we haven't really talked about the Midrash directly yet, so we better introduce this idea. The Midrash is an ancient Jewish form of commentary. So in a Western world, the Westerner is going to exegete the scriptures and the passage, and they're going to write a commentary about what's going on in the passage. It's going to be very deductive. It's going to be very straightforward. But as we talked about in our very first introductory podcast, the Easterner doesn't do this. The Easterner wants to lead you on the process of discovery. So their commentary is not going to be straightforward. Their commentary is not going to be deductive. Their commentary is going to be a very inductive process of discovery. So how the Easterner does this is when the Bible teacher uh, believes that he or she has discovered a truth. What they're going to do is they're going to uh, tell a story within the story, something that we call a midrash. There's going to be a story within the story that's going to help you find the same journey discover the same thing that the teacher has discovered. It's another version of those treasure maps, just like a chiasm. A midrash is a commentary that is a treasure map. It leads you to discovery. So there is a Jewish midrash about Noah. Now, you brought up this weird phrase about looking upon the nakedness, and there's obviously more going on there. Culturally, that uh, phrase, to look upon the nakedness, means one of two things. Uh, The word look has the idea of perceive. It's not just to see something, it's actually to perceive it, to understand it, to completely um, to perceive, not just to see. Uh, now, what this means is when somebody looks and perceives the nakedness, uh, they're doing more than just looking at it. So, one of two things is usually meant by this idiom. Either there's a molestation involved, or in some cases, a castration because they're, they're seeing and taking, they're seeing and perceiving. So either molestation or castration in the Eastern, ancient Eastern word is what this world, is what this uh, Hebrew phrase refers to. Some people, by the way, have taught that to look upon the nakedness means to sleep with their mother. It's, it's, uh, that is pulled from an idea that's found in Deuteronomy, uh, where in Deuteronomy, the author connects the idea of looking upon your father's nakedness in the Hebrew to the concept of sleeping with your mother. But that's not what the phrase actually refers to. The reason the author is doing that is because to sleep with your mother is to molest your father. 
So the phrase there actually refers to directly either molestation or castration. Um, in the midst of this really weird conversation, it actually becomes very relevant because the Midrash says, you got to figure out which one was it. Was it molestation or castration? The Midrash says, oh, well, that's easy. It was castration, which now raises a huge question. Like, you now have to figure out, the Midrash always does this. The Midrash is not being told to explain something. The Midrash is being told to raise a whole nother set of questions that now you have to go answer and you're going to stumble upon the treasure as you try to answer them. So why, why castration and not molestation? That is the question the Midrash leaves us with. Like, why make that arbitrary decision? Are you just picking one of those? There must be something in the text that alludes to the fact that there's something going on that would lead us to castration, not molestation. Now, we just said this story paralleled which story, Brent? Uh, Genesis 2 and 3. Okay, the story of Adam and Eve. Now, if you remember right, we were going through Genesis 2 and 3, and there was this really awkward paragraph that didn't belong. Can you remember what that paragraph was? Uh, the, um, the rivers. Okay. We were going through Genesis 2 and 3, and there was this really weird paragraph in the middle of nowhere about four rivers, and you actually made an observation about one of the rivers had no detail about it. Yeah, well, the first river had lots of detail, and then each successive river had less and less detail, and the fourth river had nothing. It was just like, oh, and and there there it was. Yeah, yeah, just that fourth river, like no detail given at all. Um, Now, there are two ways to talk about family trees. Uh, One of them is a tree, um, the idea of a family tree. So often in Jewish uh, imagery, you'll find that when they're talking about family and lineage, they'll talk about it in terms of a tree, an olive tree that represents a family, a myrtle tree, different kinds of trees. So a tree is one image, but another way that you might talk about lineage in terms of image is of a river and its tributaries. So a river would symbolize a family line and all of its cricks and uh, creeks, however we say it in the Northwest here. Well, it depends on how big it is. Ah, It can go either way. And uh, all those tributaries represent kind of those family branches. Now, if these two stories are paralleled, how many rivers was there? Four rivers. Okay, there were there were four rivers in Genesis two and three. How many sons does Noah have? Only three. He has three sons. And what was the command that God gave Noah when he came out of the ark? Uh, something about be fruitful and multiply. Which also shows up in the Adam and Eve story, by the way. But nevertheless, he told him to be fruitful and multiply. So just based on the story and the parallel, we know exactly what's got to come next. What's got to happen for Noah? He's got to have another son. He's got to have another son. So now all of a sudden we realize, well, there's a fourth river, there's going to be a fourth son, and now we stumble across what the Midrash might be guiding us to. Why does Noah get up and curse not Ham, but Canaan Ham's son? I think what's going on here, I just don't think, I have a real conviction based on my teaching from Rabbi Foreman. Uh, Noah is bent on revenge. And you ask the question, like, why does he wake up and, and know that <laughs> if the Midrash is right, is right, he wakes up and knows that something has happened because uh, he's, he's missing something very important. <laughs> and he wakes up and he says, what have you done? And, and he, comes, he comes out and he says, you have robbed me of my ability to produce more sons as God has commanded me. He doesn't say this, but... Uh, I am going to rob you of your son. You have, in a sense, cursed me from my ability, so let me curse you and your son. 
this whole story is a story about vengeance. And what's so interesting is coming off of the heels of the flood story, uh, the first creation story, we found that God knew uh, when to say enough to its creative power. And the story that followed Adam and Eve was a story about Adam and Eve learning how to say enough to their creative power. Now in the flood, God knew when to say enough about his destructive power. And Noah is having to learn the same. And so his invitation is the same as we've been looking at through this entire story. His invitation is to trust God. His invitation is to not let his desire for vengeance get the best of him. And his his invitation is to just trust Noah. Don't do anything stupid here. Don't pass on Ham's mistake to his children and his children's children. Don't. And, and it's interesting, the curse that Noah uses here, he's the only human being in scripture to use this curse other than God. And God would not be a human being. He's the only human being to use this curse. This curse is reserved for God alone. And no other human being uses this word for curse except for Noah. Noah is stepping into the role of God, believing that God's not going to do what ought to be done. And Noah has this desire for revenge and vengeance. And he takes this curse and he throws it not even on the one who deserves it. He throws it on the one who doesn't deserve it. And it will be this endless tragedy because all throughout the story, Canaan and his descendants are going to be at odds with the people of God. This story is going to have these eternal repercussions to it. it it's just going to be a horrible tragedy of not knowing when to say enough. Now, I don't think you necessarily meant to do this, but when you were kind of extrapolating Noah's thoughts a little bit, because Genesis 9 does not say this. It just says, when he awoke from his wine, found out what his youngest son had done, he said, curse be Canaan. And you said one of his thoughts was he wakes up and he's like, what what have you done? But God actually says that in Genesis 3. That is correct. So is that, I mean, obviously the text doesn't say that, so we don't we don't know. But is that just another potential? I mean, that's... That's exactly the kind of response I would have if I woke up in a condition like, what What have you done? Correct. I would come out of the tent and I would be a little upset. Correct. So it seems natural that that would be part of Noah's statement. Right. And so is that like, that was God's question to ask in Genesis 3. Oh man, that's a great point. Yeah, I don't know. It's not in the text directly like you pointed out, but man, that's a great point in those parallels. Yeah. And so we're going to have this story, and this is one of the places where we start to get introduced to this concept of forgiveness, which we're going to come back to a lot. One of the biggest places we're going to come back to this concept of forgiveness is in the story of Samson, or Shimshon, as he's known in the Hebrew. Uh, We'll come back to him later in our study when we get to the book of Judges. But um, this is why forgiveness is so important to putting the world back together, Uh, because it's, it's the greatest form of trust. When you forgive... You're trusting that God is in charge of the world. When you forgive, the first step to forgiveness is stopping the madness, stopping the cycle of vengeance. And it's really, truly uh, mimicking the God of the flood story, a God who knows when to stop destroying. And uh, what we keep learning here is we keep learning who God is and we keep learning what man is afraid of. Uh, and man is going to have a very hard time in these opening chapters of the story, um, knowing when to say enough. And yet the plea 
over and over and over again uh, from the author of Genesis and from God in the narratives is to just trust the story and don't lash out in our insecurity. Don't lash out in our fear. Don't lash out in our shame and the things that we think. I mean, this is all pent up in, in Noah's shame. Like he knows he's supposed to have more kids and now he can't. And now he's full of shame and now he's full of insecurity because he's not everything that he wanted to be and knew that he should be. And what is he going to do? Is he going to take it out on the next guy or is he just going to know when to say enough and let the world continue down a redemptive path? And unfortunately, uh, this story ends in yet another tragedy. Pretty good. Sounds good to me. I think that's all we got for now. Yep. Uh, now, we do have some discussion groups. We've got one in Moscow on Tuesday and in Pullman on Wednesday. Uh, Marty, I was going to ask, for, for people who have been listening to this for a few weeks now who don't live in the Palouse area, uh, would you... Uh, want to give a, a few words of encouragement about community oh yeah absolutely um we have groups kind of around the country in different pockets and places uh, that start their own discussion groups and it's great to listen to a podcast it's easy you know you plug it in while you're working out or you you, you do whatever you set some time to study aside um, but the great thing is when you study the text together and so there there are groups here that come together and and obviously they get to talk to me personally and ask me questions and many of you listening that aren't a part of that don't get to do that and yet you can still ask questions together and you can still dig into the text and you can still uh you know fire me the occasional email and things like that but uh the big ticket like the the big thing that really helps is to be able to the jews had a word for a group of people that want to get in and study and it was called a havara and the individuals are called uh, a haver and they're haverim in plural they are they are a group of people that are going to chew it up and wrestle together because you don't study the text alone like so much of the stuff that i've learned and so much of the stuff that i pass on to you is not stuff that i ever learned on my own it's stuff that i learned through the help and the discussion of other people um so every time we study the text together uh things get better so take this podcast um, get a group of people together and listen to it and then come together and, and have your own discussion groups wherever you live. It's better. Better uh, together. Absolutely. All right. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solman. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at com. Thanks again for joining us for the Bama podcast. And we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.